0: Welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm super excited to share a conversation with Audrey Crane. Um, Audrey has just published a book with Sense and Respond Press on uh, what CEOs need to know about design. And she has a long history in uh, design and product and even got to work under Marty King uh, at one point in the past. So, Audrey, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: So um why don't we start with a little bit of background and then we can talk about the the book um and anything else that that we feel like talking about. So how did you get
1: into tech? Oh gosh. Well, my father was a developer and actually my mother was too and nobody can see me but I'm almost 50 years old. So I think I'm the the oldest one of the very oldest people that grew up with technology in the house. So my dad wrote software for Apple, for the Apple II. We had an Apple II in our house, and um, uh, Apple shipped him an early version of the Macintosh computer, so he wrote software that it originally shipped with. They sent him stuff to write games for and things.
0: Oh, my goodness, um, what a so piece from- of history.
1: Wow, sorry. <laughs> I just scary. needed to say that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's super cool. I remember him writing the game where you play pool, uh, on the Macintosh, like a very, very early version of Macintosh. And it's pretty cool to to remember that stuff. I actually remember before that, my parents um, bringing home punch cards for their yeah. homework. So punch cards that computer programs were written on. And yeah. uh, so I go way back. I wrote my first computer program when I was five on a Radio Shack TRS-80. So that's how I, I tell engineers that story to get credibility with them when they look at me and they're like, oh, she can't possibly know what she's talking about. Look at those freckles. It's not credible. Yeah. And so um so for my summer jobs, I actually did QA and stuff in and I did a share of waiting tables, but I often would be doing quality assurance for whatever um company my dad was, was running the engineering team for. So that's really how I got started in tech. I did not want to do that for a living. My my mother did it as well. My brother is a developer and I was like, That stuff is boring. I'm going to study theater. So I studied theater in college. My parents said, well, that's fine as long as you double major. My mother said that to me and thank goodness she did because I uh, picked up a, a, or I was actually studying also pure mathematics, which is super nerdy and totally useless in the real world. But um, having theater and math on my resume was what caught the eye of Hugh Deverly. He was at Netscape at the time, leading design, and he saw this resume come by with his background in in math and theater. And I think it must have been it was pretty early, so it was maybe ninety five uh, when that happened. He said, um, "Oh, he recognized a kind of right brain left brain person, and brought me in to interview." And so I had a tech job before that. That uh, I moved to California to act for a living, and I wanted a day job that paid. <laughs> So paid better than uh, being a breakfast waitress, which is, everybody should tip their breakfast waitresses better. So so I was out there doing that work for a little company that got acquired by AOL, and I didn't want to work for AOL. So I interviewed at Netscape, and that's where I met Hugh and started to understand what this world of design was about. And I've been in tech ever since.
0: That's amazing. Um, so I know we, we do have a good amount of, of younger listeners, um, who, uh, and, and product people as opposed to design people. So, uh, enlighten, enlighten us all, um, Hugh on Hugh, who, Hugh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for saying that. And actually even design people don't necessarily know him because he's not a big self-promoter, but, um, Hugh ran, Apple Creative Services for quite a few years. So he did um, many extraordinary things, including kind of consolidating product names and logos. Um, he was running that team when they came up with the Macintosh logo with the smile and the face and the profile. And uh, then he went to run design at uh, Netscape uh, and then was running design for AOL. But he's he teaches at Stanford and he's really a a who's who in the industry educated at, at yale and i cannot stress enough how brilliant that guy is uh 15 minutes in a room with him and he's going to blow your mind and it doesn't really matter what you're talking about so he's a he's a luminary he's very interested also in concept mapping and modeling and kind of seeing the big picture and so he's and he also sorry i should say um, He ran the project, the Knowledge Navigator Project, which, if you don't know what that is, you should look it up on Wikipedia, but it really predicted the future of computing and personal computing in a way that was amazingly prescient and really influential.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Um, so I know that you have a, a long career and I don't want to make it sound like, um, and then she just jumps right over to writing a book. But, um, <laughs> but I do, uh, do want to dive into the book and why, why this is what you wanted to talk about. And then maybe we can go back to whatever stories are most interesting.
1: So tell us about, uh, about your book. Yeah. So um, what I ha- saw really honestly throughout my career, so it, both inside companies running design Running design teams as well as at consultancies like Deverly Design Office and Design Map where I am now, is there's a really uneven understanding of what design for um, digital products is. And what we mean by that is all over the map, and there's really um, there's really no level setting. And it it's happened for years. And you would kind of think that by this point we would have sorted it all out. Like designers would have explained to everybody sufficiently what it is that we do and, and everybody who works with technology would understand it. But uh, honestly, I was um, just having a conversation last month with an uh, engineering manager and I said, what percentage of your products that customers use have teams with designers on them are, are made by teams that have designers on the team. When I asked the question, I thought it's kind of a, I'm kind of cheating, right? Like the uh, there's an obvious answer to that question, which is no products that see, use you, you know, that see our customers ever get built without a designer being involved. And in fact, he said, oh, uh, I think designers are on 60% of the teams that are, Building, so <laughs> this was just last month, uh, and it's really common. Uh, on the one, I'm, I sort of see that there's these two, that there are these two universes. There's a universe that I'm normally living in, where. We're having kind of PhD level conversations about whether design thinking is broadly applicable or how it relates to lean. And of course, everybody knows exactly what lean is and the impact that Sigma has had and the move away from Illustrator since we have these like hybrid solutions and what it means for the world that prototyping is so easy, you know. But at the same time, it's really normal for me to come across uh, a team that works on software that has no designer on staff at all, and that might say, "Oh, we don't really have a UX. There's just like, I mean, there are people see stuff on screens, but it's not really a UX. There's not a user experience." And so, or we had a client recently ask us to when we were delivering the design maps, because uh, the name of the company is Design Map. No. Designers produce a lot of maps, but so far we haven't branded anything at Design Maps. So, uh, or don't know the difference between a wireframe and a mock up, or are confused when we interchangeably use the word mock up and comp. So, there's this PhD level world that we live in. And I think, you know, I'm just going to make up some numbers. Maybe 20% of companies that develop technology are living over here in the lean, agile design thinking world with designers on every team that produces software that, that users see, uh, and by user, I mean any user, not just the external user. And then there's maybe 80% of the world that has software fundamental to the way that they make money and yet has no idea what we're talking about at all. And so... Um,
0: yeah, so I'm gonna, um, I want to sort of uh, add a little there um, because I think that that's a really... A really interesting point, and I, I know that our listeners, um, a lot of them come from you know deeper in the the tech industry and, and might not be as aware of that. Um, so I just wanted to kind of underscore it. I think for myself, and I don't know if this is similar for you, um, it wasn't until I started doing consulting instead of working in house, you know, on a product team, mm-hmm. or, um, and I'm sure you know corollary in house on a design team, um, that I started to mm-hmm. really see you know how many companies ha- don't have designers or product managers. Um, And, and now, you know, now I'm at a point where I'm able to listen to you. And I'm like, Oh, I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's a bunch of people out there. Like I was at this training, we were running a training for 25 people, we had to ask them to bring, you know, everyone in product and design and engineering leadership from the company. And there are no designers in the entire room. Like there's just not, mm-hmm. There are all business analysts mm-hmm. and project managers and mm-hmm. program managers and directors. Yep. Of engineering. Um, so I now have seen this, but you know, I think for some people it's, it's hard. It's hard to even imagine. Cause is. design is like really hot it's- if you're in the middle of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And even if you know, it's hot and what really, what really like uh, I think the spark that lit the fire was I had a, a CEO of a small company call me. He's like, 200 and 300 employees and and he said uh okay so i was an engineer i understand engineering i got promoted i'm ceo now i've learned about marketing and hr and operations and all that stuff so i i get that and i i hear that design is important um and i i think it would be really interesting to ask him about his product management function as well but Anyway, he said, I I know that design is important. I'm kind of seeing these like analyst reports, but I don't know what it is, how to build a design team, how to leverage them to have, you know, the best possible impact on my business, my employees, and my company. So can you help me with this? And geez, I how many CEOs must be in this position like where they came from other places maybe they haven't worked with design in the past maybe they're back end engineers or or doing something in some other areas of the business and now you know I'm not going to hand them a copy of design of everyday things or teach them Photoshop that's ridiculous so how is this guy supposed to know this stuff and um, and that was really the that was really the spark that lit the fire but it's you know, it was not two years ago that I met a company in Silicon Valley, in Silicon Valley. they this company started in the mid 80s and they were uh, kind of a back office organization. So they started printing paychecks and then somebody at some point was like, oh, we should have an extranet. And uh, then this person would build this code and that person would build that code. And when we met them, not a single product manager, not a single designer. They li- had somebody on staff with a title webmaster. Uh, and when we said, are you guys agile, are you waterfall? Like everybody is agile, but something, you know, agile, but we just started agile, but just this one team or agile, but only engineer. And they didn't, they didn't declare themselves agile. in fact, they didn't even declare themselves waterfall. They said, we have an SDLC we have a software development life cycle that we follow and that's our process. And that's a very, um, that's a word with a very rich history that goes way back. And so it was, you know, in some ways I felt like finding a pterodactyl in, you know, downtown Mountain View. Oh man. I love that (laughs) imagery. Yes. (laughs) I'm like, what are you guys doing here? But at the same time, it's, it happens all the time. And we just happen – my mom works as a business analyst today. Just listened to her not long ago on a conference call over the holidays with six other business analysts trying to decide whether something should be pulled down a radio button for, like, 20 minutes. Whoa. Wow. Not kidding. <laughs> yeah. So – What's exciting is that those companies exist and people like you and me and the people that you listen to the podcast um, can have a really positive impact on those companies. I mean, really make things happen for them. They have history, they have revenue, they have great sales teams. There's just no on-ramp, you know, there's no way to get from, we have no designers, we heard in the but we don't know what to do, to having them. Because when you look out in the world, there's lots of conferences of designers preaching to the choir, talking about really highfalutin advanced things that are useful, but to that audience, but really um, impenetrable to the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, I I mean, this is something I've known in general since Uh, And I'm sure many people have experienced this Um, since getting into education and training, which is something that I have always loved um, throughout my life. Just wasn't able to teach people, you know, in tech about it before. But that there's always this sort of wall, like these self-reinforcing ecosystems where people, you know, learn enough that they then spend time with other people who know enough and they get deeper and deeper and deeper. And then there's people on the outside and it's like crossing over, you know, finding that on-ramp is really hard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so mm-hmm. I think it's so helpful that, that you've been focused on that problem. So tell us more about what that looks like. So if somebody is, um, you know, talking to someone, or if they're working with somebody who doesn't really understand design, wh- where do they start? What do you recommend for them?
1: By the book. <laughs> but then, um, so the the thing that I see most often is that that person actually isn't a CEO. They're a business leader within an organization. And it's frequently, it comes from engineering for whatever reason. Um, uh, there's a some engineering manager, or engineering VP who sees that um, a couple of problems are happening. One is engineers are spending time doing design, frankly. Because the alternative to good design isn't no design, it's bad design. Like there is design. Design exists. Like, so we need to just accept that. There's going to be some interaction with the computer and there's going to be some interface there. So if there isn't a designer and stuff, somebody else with um, perhaps less expertise is spending time and money doing that work. And sometimes they like it and they're skilled at it, which is great. And sometimes they don't like it or they're not skilled at it, which is a problem. And then on top of that, the kind of problem of the individual, my, this is kind of my pet theory of why these are often engineering managers. They um, they see like, oh, we're building this really rich, powerful engine. Uh, it's like a Lamborghini engine, but it's being obscured under the hood of a, you know, of a Pinto. <laughs> So, so maybe that, so people can't understand from looking at it, how powerful it is. They don't have access to all the features. You know, maybe the Pinto gear shift only has four, but we actually built five in the engine, but we can't even get to it. And it feels untrustworthy. It feels unpowerful. And so imagine investing all that money in this great engine and then seeing it, the the value of it significantly depleted by this user experience design that obfuscates it. So why not just is for no other reason than just to get the return on the investment that we put in the engineering, get a better user experience design in layer there that's not covering things up. So, um, so anyway, I think the first step is recognizing that design exists. And I, I really cannot tell you how many times we've had people even in you know, in the rarefied often often in the rarefied tech world, say, well, the, there is no UX. It's B 2 B. Like uh, I don't understand the correlation between those two things. Or um. there is no UX. It's internal only. Or that you know, there's just kind of weird disconnect between um, it there being it it being perceived as important and it having user experience. So. So the first is just recognizing like, okay, there is design, I would say is the, is the first step to get started and then um, hiring, you know, and and that's a big part of the book is understanding that you you can't hire someone to design your logo, I mean you can, but there are very few people in the world that are going to be great at designing a logo and designing your stationery and designing your marketing site and doing visual design for your digital product and doing the interaction design for your digital product and doing the content strategy the information architecture. Like those kinds of people do exist, but they're few and far between. And if you put that in the job description, you're going to look like you don't know what you're doing Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and kind of turn off people who are more skilled. So so recognizing that there is design and, and bringing someone in and and I recommend either hire a a design partner or a coach or a friend to help you write a job description and then also to help you interview because um, you can interview for all the right stuff right cultural fit and ability to collaborate and communicate and and all these things but and and certainly uh anybody's opinion about the quality of a portfolio is valid right because the portfolio was developed to impress you but it's still very helpful to have a designer around to help with the interview process to know what questions to ask to know what answers are alarming and the other thing i tell sorry go ahead
0: Yeah. So I was just going to add on that one. Um, That's something I also see a lot, you know, both with design and with product management that um, you often have a business leader or an engineering leader doing the hiring and not knowing how to evaluate, you know, good versus bad or what challenges they're going to face. Um, So I like that you suggested that they have uh, like a friend um, help with the interviews, you know, that they find somebody who can help them with that.
1: Um, Yeah. And I, I've also found when I've helped teams build this, uh, build their internal teams, and we kind of talk about helping our clients build a core competency because user experiences design should be a, a core competency. Marty says that all the time, and, and we totally agree with him. Mm-hmm. So uh, if we're helping somebody build a core competency, it's interesting how surprised people are to hear my focus on the person's process versus the end result. Mm -hmm. So I think what they have in their head is like, I'm going to look at this picture or these screens, and then I'm going to either like it or not. And that's basically the assessment. But of course, any picture or screens in in the modern world is the result of some kind of collaboration. Even though they did it in school, they got feedback from other students and their teachers. So understanding the story of how they got there that they might not even love the end result. They might have done things differently, but how they work with other people, how transparent and clear they can make their thinking process so that other people can engage with them in that thinking process. And then also for me, really key is how they take critique. So I always say, even if I'm madly in love with the end product, I always say, why did you choose that yellow? You know, that just, or I'm confused about this. and just Seeing in that setting how they respond to something like that because that's what 50 percent of your conversations are going to be and the one time i ignored my own rule was that things went awry quickly so i always look for people who are open to that and i don't want need yeah. them to say like you're right i hate that yellow but i need them to say oh that's interesting can you tell me more about that or yeah. "Oh, i hadn't thought of that or yeah, I tried and this is the best, you know, whatever the thing is, just something not defensive.
0: So you just totally got me curious. What happened when you denied your own rule there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I broke my rule um, in in that situation. It turned out to be a person. This person, she um, did have an art degree, but not, it, it was a, a different kind of art. Uh, it was an English degree. And so the, the thing I like about formally trained designers, and I, I say this as not a, a you know, I t- obviously took classes that don't have a degree in design is that they spend four years getting a thick skin, right? Cause you get some four years being criticized and a uh, theater degree is pretty good for that too. Um, <laughs> but yep, this person, I thought, well, you know, sh- she has an English degree, so she probably has that. And she didn't take my feedback well, but she's probably nervous about the interview or something and um yeah we uh she ended up not working out and uh was very like very defensive almost to the point of hostility about feedback and then sort of like started this whole thing about like you can only give me positive constructive feedback i won't accept any <laughs> i won't accept any feedback that's not positive or something oh, boy. and uh yeah so she didn't work out yeah it was, it was a rough time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's the kind of thing, you know, um, I think you're totally right. It, you know, you might've loved the end results that she showed you in her portfolio, but <laughs> mm-hmm. you, get, you have to work with her all the time. And you're also like, yep. you know, one thing I've experienced for sure with both product managers and designers is, um, uh, anybody can, I mean, not necessarily anybody, but it it doesn't take skill to like luck into something that's a really good fit for a market once it takes skill to, you know, like get there repeatedly for different markets. And sometimes that Mm -hmm. means you're building or designing something you don't even love yourself, but you're not the market for Mm -hmm. it. So that's okay. You know, um, and Mm -hmm. you know, you can't always tell that from a portfolio.
1: Absolutely. And you, for all you know, that the product manager or the CEO or the CEO's wife was like, I want everything to be green or whatever. I worked with somebody who hated triangles for whatever reason. <laughs> so we, were never, <laughs> we were never allowed to use triangles or anything. Uh, so who knows? Who knows how that collaboration came out? It's really a lot more about their thought process. Are they clear? Are they logical? Are they organized? Are they systems thinkers? Can they explain their reasoning? Can they hear other points of view and integrate that? The end result matters and you know, of course, but that's only part of the assessment. Yeah.
0: All right. So we got first you need to understand that design <laughs> exists and is a thing, even if you don't think you've got design on your product. We've got second, you've got to find good design people and you might need some help with that. What else?
1: Yeah. So um another sort of common mistake is thinking that design is either just colors and fonts or is design thinking. Uh, really design thinking has gotten really broad usage. HBR is writing articles like business people hear this this phrase um ideo is brilliant at marketing stuff like this. And so there's this idea that oh it's design thinking which is just a, it's a different way of thinking about coming up with a solution um and trying it out and then on the other end and I I saw was um 4 years ago uh at a conference for healthcare and I was at the opening night, I was day two keynote, I was at opening night having drinks and, and talking to people and they're very nice. And they said, uh, what are you talking about? And I had this sort of like really specific talk on how to do user research in the healthcare arena, given HIPAA and everything else, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but what I do, I'm a designer, like that's kind of the shorthand and, and everybody to a person said, oh, design is so important, color, I mean, I really don't think. I think we could think a lot harder about color. You know that kind of. State. Oh my god! And it was. It was so. I promise you, Holly. Every single person had that kind of a response, and to the point that I skipped day one of the conference to rewrite my day two talk to be like a 101, Here's what design and software means. Here's how you integrate it with your engineering process. Now. You know, this was a a this was a coverage being sponsored by a specific EHR and I think that the EHR ecosystem and the fact that it's not SaaS twisted back in time, you know, ten or twenty years behind everything else in the world. But still, you know, that I I think people would be astonished to, to and so um, what I talk to business leaders about is um, the five elements of user experience design, which is an old book. I think J- uh, Jesse James Garrett published that in like 2000 or something, but it's it just says look, it's it's scope, it's strategy, it's structure, it's skeleton, and then and then surface and. Uh, I don't think the model's necessarily perfect, although no models are perfect, but it's very helpful in explaining to people that it's not just this like underlying strategy thing, design thinking, um, although people would argue and I would agree with them that you could apply design thinking anywhere here, but, and it's not just the surface, what it looks like, but it's these parts that go together, kind of like if you're a mathematician and you show your work, right? There's not like this strategy thing that you do over here and then there's a there's swamps and colors at the end, but rather there's logic connecting each one to the other. And it's all the way through. It's pervasive. It's what people are trying to do and how we help them do it and how those things are organized and what's presented on the screen and the hierarchy of that information and how it looks. And it's all connected. So helping people understand that it's all this stuff and not just one end or the other end. Um, really, it, really, really important way. and surprisingly difficult.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I really love the way you describe that. Um, it goes really well with sort of the reason why, you know, this is called the product science podcast, because um, I think that a lot of times in both product and design, I see people that, sort of think it's magic to go from here to there and you just have to have this like great instinct and um mm-hmm. and, I, and i don't think it is i think it's just that we don't have enough people talking about the language of all those pieces in between and how you go from you know that beginning strategy to that end surface um you know mm-hmm. with a, something more clear than just um well i found an expert who knows what to do and they gave me a, their output
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's like that new yorker cartoon right of the mathematicians at the chalkboard and That this step and that step and that step and then they write and then a miracle occurs and then that step and that step like there's no black boxes in this there's there are moments where you're looking at a blank screen and you have to kind of take a breath and put the first thing on there but um, there are no black boxes in this certainly there's creativity involved but there's still a through line yeah yeah that's really cool
0: so are there other things, um, or I guess actually on that one, how how did, um, how did it go when you changed your content for the talk at this conference? Um, how did people respond to it?
1: <laughs> uh, you know, they were very positive. People are nice. So I appreciate that. I did, um, I think the best thing about that, though, honestly, was I, I kept a little thing from my other talk about research. I had given people... Um, a pocket protocol. So like a a research protocol that literally anybody could use for research on any product from um, attitudinal to behavioral research. So I was proud of that piece and I handed it out and I said, look, you guys are gonna go get on airplanes when you leave this conference and you are gonna be sitting next to captive usability research participants or research participants. So take this protocol, circle five questions that you can ask either about your product or if you don't have a product yet, you can ask uh, you can ask attitudinal things and then do a research session. You don't need any, you don't have to be worried about HIPAA. You know, if you've got a product, tell them to put fake information and three people treated to me that they had done research either in the airport or on the airplane on their way home. So the rest, I, you know, I don't, who knows. hopefully it hit home with somebody or it was the first of three times hearing that same message and then and then it took I don't know
0: yeah that's cool though it's good that uh that people shared that they gave it a try on their way home you know that's when you know you've sparked someone's interest
1: absolutely I mean that somebody actually did something they didn't just say oh that was really helpful that helped me a lot but they did something different that impacted their product that was really exciting for me
0: yeah absolutely um so yeah uh is there any other any other things that we haven't covered that are sort of like major themes that you that you think are important when you're trying to
1: um i do have one last soapbox so the in the book i cover sort of the overall design process and activities and deliverables that happen at, at different steps of the process and also I get into how to give feedback and focusing on intent and asking questions rather than saying, I don't like triangles. Um, But uh, the soapbox that maybe is most interesting for your audience is um, about talking to users. So I know all business leaders and product managers uh, go out there in the world and they talk to users and entrepreneurs and founders. And I think that's great. Um, But, the thing that makes product managers and founders and entrepreneurs successful is that they're charismatic, they're, they're great evangelists, people like to be around them, because usually product managers aren't the boss of anybody, right? The way that they get their job done is they, they excite and influence other people. And certainly entrepreneurs and founders are the same way. So if, if they wear that hat, and they go up there to ask somebody about their current attitudes, behavior, or ask them to try to use a product, often what they learn is how charismatic they are, (laughs) right? They're the good looking people that everybody likes that wants them to like them. And then you end up with this kind of garbage in, garbage out problem where they come back and they say, I was right. And a lot of, more junior product managers. That's kind of the outcome that they're hoping for from the usability session, whether they're conducting or somebody else is conducting. They want, they want to hear that they were right. That's, the, that's success versus learning. And so I talked to, and we, we kind of run this workshop for, for business leaders and, and again, product managers and entrepreneurs to help them learn to put a different hat on. And I use a metaphor with them. Um, there's a great essay by a typographer Beatrice Ward called The Crystal Goblet and she's writing about typography but very briefly what she says is if as a typographer you do your job right it's kind of like being a great wine glass you're thin you're transparent you're creating space nobody really notices you nobody notices the glass Right. Because the whole reason for the glass to be there is to create is to make the wine the best that it can be so that you can smell it better and see the color better and taste it better. And so she makes this um, parallel to typography that nobody should notice the size of the gutters or the font you picked or the line spacing. They should just be able to take in the content that you typeset at its best. So I, I take that analogy and apply it to conducting research with users. And I say, you guys need to be the crystal goblets. You need to be present as little as possible. And there's all these specific tips about how to do that. Like, be quiet. Count to five in your head for, you know, if there's silence. To see if they'll fill that space in. Don't use your own words. Use their words. Um, Don't ask leading questions in fact kind of don't ask questions they ask these kind of trailing questions so would you say the experience of using this product was. See that's awkward and you want to say something right now instead of saying was it good, was it bad, was it good or bad right and so. um, I have seen every time I run this workshop, the first thing somebody says is that was way harder than I thought it was going to be. Which is great because it's not rocket science but understanding that you really need to apply yourself um, to take off your charismatic hat and be as boring (laughs) as you can possibly be as not there as possible and make space for that person to fill and you will learn so much and what's great is that um, I definitely have seen entrepreneurs a switch flips and they're like, Oh, I totally get it. Like I've been talking to, you know, I've been fundraising and talking to potential board members and customers and then all these things I'm pitching and selling and getting them excited. And I just have to turn that off and be just about silence and learning and they can do it. Unfortunately people who are terrible at it are the people that don't know they're terrible at it because <laughs> you the self-awareness that makes you the lack of self-awareness that makes you terrible at it also makes it hard to understand that you're not doing a good job at it. But <laughs> I do tricky. suggest, yeah, it is tricky, but I, I ask product managers if they really, if they don't have designers or researchers that can do research for them, or they really want to, to test something out, I suggest that they swap. So like get a buddy mm-hmm. and like you test your buddy's product and have them test yours because you don't really have an agenda. You don't know anywhere near as much. It's kind of like engineers testing their own code, right? Yeah. So let's just trade and then bring that, bring what we learned back or bring the recordings back. You know, you don't even have to write anything down. Um, Mm -hmm. But getting them, getting entrepreneurs out of the room with users when they're doing research, whether that's um, literally or, figuratively is, is I think really important because there's all this time spent and it might not only not be productive, but be counterproductive.
0: Yeah. Um, I love that soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> Thank it's such you. such a good soapbox. <laughs> um, yeah, I know, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan. Um, I think, uh, what you were saying reminds me a bit of, um, in the first season I had an episode where we interviewed uh Caitlin Borgoyne. You can talk to hundreds of users and still be wrong. Um, that was mm-hmm. the hypothesis for hers. And and she basically learned the lesson you just described. Um, you know, when she was an entrepreneur and now she teaches others how to how to like stop being that charismatic, um and and be a, a you know, Good a, looking a, Yeah. <laughs> and how how to uh how to be more more invisible. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, you know. I like, I like your story about the goblet. That's really cool.
1: Um, You know, being, it's a great essay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Being the, you know, the science angle um, for me, I say, you want to be a scientist. You're observing, you're not participating. You know, the point is not to Mm -hmm. not to be uh, you know, disrupting it by being there. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's such an important thing. And a lot of people, also, you started the whole thing with, I know that users and found that product managers and founders and people are all talking to users. And I was, I debated whether to interrupt you and be like, no,
1: many of them pretend. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be nice. You They're were. All kind of yeah. <laughs> They're all good looking and charismatic.
0: <laughs> yeah. It was so
1: kind of you. You're so kind.
0: <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> well, it's you know, maybe there's some anxiety about talking to people and maybe we could clear that up just by saying, you don't really, you're not supposed to talk, you know? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I, the other piece of what you've been saying that I think helps clear it up too, is just like, you're supposed to learn, you know? So it's okay if what you learn is your idea wasn't great because your job is to learn fast and change the plan.
1: Yep. Yeah. You're going to learn it now
0: or later. When would you rather learn it? Exactly. Exactly. Um, it has been so much fun to talk to you. I always like to kind of wrap up with um, just like if there's one, you know, final word of advice you have, um, you know, for, uh, for your people, whoever your people are. So what would sort of be, how do you encapsulate what you think is most
1: important? Um, I, I guess I would say that design exists profoundly and impactfully. And you can use it to your advantage or not. Mm-hmm. I know that's not very quippy.
0: Yeah, no, it is. It's, you're right. Um, that's awesome. Okay, well, and where can people find you? And where can they find the book?
1: Yeah, so the book is on Amazon. Um, and... Uh, people can find me at Audrey at designmap.com, or you can also find Design Map and stuff about the book and uh, other things at designmap.com.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was fantastic, and I can't wait to share it.
1: Such a pleasure. Thanks, Holly. Happy New Year.
0: Yeah. Happy New Year to you, too, Audrey. Thanks.
1: Right.
0: Bye. Bye. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.